you a high performer obsessed with growth and looking for an edge? Welcome to Mind Body Peak Performance. Together, we'll discover underground secrets to unlocking the full potential of your mind, body, and spirit. We'll learn from some of the world's leading minds, from ancient wisdom to cutting edge tools and everything in between. This is your host, Nick Urban. Enjoy the episode. This day and age, you've certainly heard of plant medicines. You might have some opinions, whether they're good, bad, useful, dangerous, but have you heard of animal medicines? Well, today we're discussing a topic known as combo. This is a non-psychedelic animal medicine that's often used to provoke a wide variety of healing responses. Hi, I'm Nick Irvin, host of the Mind Body Peak Performance Podcast. And today we're discussing, as I mentioned, combo. In this episode, you'll learn an overview of what it is, the safety of it, how to evaluate combo practitioners, how this medicine compares and contrasts to some of the classic psychedelics, the research that our guest this week is currently engaging in, and everything else you should know before considering this a potential tool in your toolbox. We went particularly deep around the peptides and active ingredients that are most likely found within this animal medicine, and that is also a current frontier of combo research. Our guest this week is Caitlin Thompson. She's a seasoned international combo practitioner, having served over 1,300 clients with a specialty in Lyme disease, autoimmune conditions, and other chronic illnesses. Later in the episode, you'll learn how she got involved with Combo, but she is a formally educated neurobiologist and a research associate at UCSD School of Medicine. She operates as an independent scientific researcher with her previous studies focusing on psychedelics and their potential for treating autoimmune conditions and the prebiotic effect of herbs on the human microbiome. As we discuss, she is also currently pioneering some of the first human studies on Combo. And although this will be the first human study, Combo has been used by different tribes regularly for a very long time. You can find all the resources and links to the things we discuss at mindbodypeak.com slash the number 136. She also mentioned a couple resources that she's created to help facilitate safe combo use, and those are combospecialist.com, medicinefrogcombo.com, and combofinder.com, combo spelled K-A-M-B-O. You can find her on Instagram at Medicine Frog Combo and at Combo Finder. Currently, I have no sponsors powering this podcast. So if you find this information helpful, I would greatly appreciate you sharing it with a friend or someone you think could benefit from this information. Or if you feel so inclined, scroll down to the bottom of where you're listening to this, give it a thumbs up, leave a rating and review, because that's how I find innovative, thought-provoking guests like Caitlin and how this show gets found. All right, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Caitlin Thompson. Caitlin Thompson, welcome to Mind Body Peak Performance. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and have this conversation with you. 
Me too. And thank you for waking up at the crack of dawn. It is like 7 a.m. ish your time over there. And it is 5 p.m. for me. So you are putting one up for the team. So thank you for that. And let's start out today with something interesting about Combo or your line of work that will help people understand why this is something they should pay attention to. There's a saying that I like to share that the difference between medicine and poison is dosage. And um, I think the concept of combo as a frog poison, it invites a lot of deeper exploration into really the definition of toxicity versus medicine um, and allows us to kind of see that the, the line between poison and medicine is not so clear and, and it's quite blurry and, and everything is on a spectrum. So balance is really the key with every compound that we utilize for our well-being or, or not well-being. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at any of the major drugs that are used, caffeine, nicotine, there's like, you go on the list, there's a lethal dose of all those. And for a lot of them, it's not that much higher than the therapeutic dose. Like caffeine, you take 10 times the recommended dose you're starting to push the limits and same with nicotine and alcohol, like definitely a neurotoxin. So you're right. There's something to that. It's a lot more than just the blanket statement of combo being a neurotoxin, but we haven't even introduced what that is. We'll do that in a second, but let's warm up today with the unusual or non-negotiable things you've done for your health, your performance and your bioharmony. Yeah. I, I make my health my first priority. Um, I'll probably talk more about my story later, but as someone who has had chronic illness in the past and has some of those tendencies still for dysfunction, um, exercise, good sleep, and good food are the non-negotiables for me to, to thrive. And, and it's a suitcase that, full of supplements, maybe. <laughs> ah, do you have anything in particular, any supplements you are a big fan of? You know, right now I'm really enjoying experimenting with all sorts of strange peptides that I've been injecting. So I'm not necessarily endorsing that, but man, they are incredible and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think there is some relation between combo and peptides also. So we can touch on that in a minute, but yeah, let's dive in. What is combo and how did you get involved with it? Yeah. So combo is a traditional indigenous Amazonian medicine that was originally used for a number of reasons, but primarily as like a hunting aid where it would sharpen their senses and their visual acuity, improve their endurance, um, their stamina, and their resilience, much like an adaptogenic um, substance. And they would also, you know, they, it depends kind of, I guess, on which tribe you're referring to, but the Matses who are primarily who I'm connected to, um, they would also use it before going into like hunts or raids because, you know, there is some violence that has happened in the past of human history and, in really all, all, uh, um, all societies. But, uh, they also used it for, Things like infections or snake bites or malaria and uh, something called panema, which is basically equivalent to like a dark cloud of bad luck or stagnation or, or, or funk. I kind of um, 
think it's like an equivalent to systemic inflammation. <laughs> um, and it comes from the skin secretion of a very specific type of tree frog. Now you're like, whoa, that's that's weird. So uh, Phyla medusa bicolor is the species, and this frog secretes this substance that is full of bioactive peptides uh, as a defense mechanism from predators, but also microbes. Uh, there are, there is some really potent antimicrobial activity to the secretion. And yeah, it's full of these really potent and really fascinating peptides, which we'll I'm sure talk about more in a bit. Um, and so the medicine is applied through superficial burns made on the skin, usually the arm, but you know, you can definitely apply to other areas of the body. Um, and within minutes, the secretion has entered the body. There's some debate about the mechanism of that, but it seems to get into the bloodstream and, and likely the lymphatic system as well. And very quickly induces a whole host of physiological experiences that are generally perceived as not very pleasant. Um, and, and usually this process is accompanied by vomiting, increased heart rate, heat flushing, uh, facial swelling, nausea, uh, sweating, um, just general like malaise and, and feeling sick. I mean, it, it feels like very intense food poisoning concentrated into like a 20, 30 minute period. Uh, so it's, it's definitely not a recreational or fun activity in, unless you're, you know, a bit sadistic, but um, it's about 30 minutes or so of feeling quite ill. So you might wonder like, well, why the heck would anyone ever do this? Um, there are incredible physical, emotional, and spiritual benefits that people gather from these experiences. And it really is a very holistic medicine because it's the, the real bioactivity of the peptides seems to really interface with like the physiological mechanisms that can help facilitate these deeper changes or shifts in the psyche and in the spiritual body, depending on kind of, you know, what your beliefs are. Um, so it really is a deeply fascinating uh, experience and medicine. And one thing that's worth noting, it is, it is not a psychedelic medicine. It is not a hallucinogenic substance. And oftentimes people will confuse combo with something called Bufo or 5-MeO-DMT, which is derived from a toad, and that is very psychedelic. But Cambo comes from a frog, so there is a distinction. And it really is quite unique, and it's hard to describe the experience to someone who has never gone through it because there's, there's not much that you can compare it to, really. Yeah, I was going to say, by the way you were describing it, I'm not sure that you're selling the physical experience all that well. It doesn't sound very pleasant. It's not. You don't do it necessarily to enjoy the process. It is the gifts that come afterwards. That's where the magic happens. Um, it's the days, weeks, and months after where you notice changes, you notice shifts that are happening, and you notice a lightness. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have these profound lessons that happen acutely in the experience, but that takes a little bit more participation and someone who already has 
cultivated an ability to create meaning in ritual um, and, and consciously navigate in experience. But if you're kind of passive and, and waiting for it to like fix you or, or do something for you or show you something, uh, you might be disappointed and um, sitting there waiting for your your you know ayahuasca download or whatever that you think that you're entitled to. <laughs> So what are some of the experiences people have in the days, weeks, or even months after that makes it so that they feel it was a good use of their time, energy, and it was worth going through the 30 minutes-ish of like intense, I don't want to say suffering, but discomfort? Yeah. I mean, first, I want to say there's a variety of ways it can unwind for people. So there's no right or wrong way. But I would say that Cambo is a medicine of transformation and, and catalyzation. And what that means is it often can be disruptive, um, which is kind of why we do it, right? Um, it's when we're stuck, when we're in a groove that's not serving us, it takes us and shakes us like a snow globe, very similar to psychedelics in that way, um, and helps us kind of reemerge with some space and some perspective and perhaps things like neuroplasticity or neurogenesis. We don't really know yet. No one's investigated that. But, you know, on a physical level, usually depending on the health of the person and, and if they're experiencing something like the Herxheimer effect, you know, it really depends. But um, usually within some time after the session, people will have a sense of like mental clarity and of um, emotional balance and, and resilience and centeredness of groundedness of well-being. And they just feel like they have more capacity to be neutral when dealing with things like conflicts or challenge. A lot of times people will find the courage to do the things that they know that they've needed to do for a while, but have been avoidant of. So maybe that's um, transitioning out of a relationship. Maybe that's quitting a job or, or making a decision to like start a new chapter of your life. So in that way, it can sometimes, uh, uh, I say bulldoze your cottage to help you build your castle, which it can be, that can be a bit dramatic. Sometimes, sometimes people are super disoriented. Sometimes uh, like everything just kind of explodes into pieces and then they're like, Oh, I have to rebuild my life. So that's on the extreme end of things, psychologically speaking. Uh, but also people physically will have like enhanced resilience and endurance reductions in pain, um, reductions in, in various types of symptoms, depending on if they have an ailment or what that ailment is. Um, you know, I've had people who couldn't have a bowel movement by their, by themselves for years, suddenly have a natural, normal bowel movement. Um, so I have really seen some like incredible things that happen instantly, or, you know, people will come with the intention of really addressing a physical issue. And, and then of course I invite in like deeper meaning. I'm like, okay, cool. Yes. You have Epstein-Barr virus and you have fatigue and all this stuff, but you know, let's ask the questions of like what compromised you that made you susceptible to an opportunistic organism and, and immune compromised. Um, and then I invite in this like deeper reflection on more of like the psycho-spiritual or psychosomatic um, components of what set someone up for a physical illness to manifest. And they'll do the session and then they'll go home and like journal about a traumatic event that they didn't really think about until the session happened and they 
these shared it with me or um, it just came kind of to the forefront of their mind again. And then they go into like remission for five years from two sessions. That That is a true story that happened to me with, with an Epstein-Barr case. So um, this stuff never gets boring. It is so amazingly potent for a lot of people. And it's super weird. And it's always different. Um, and it has just kept me thoroughly entertained for you know, a good number of years now. Yeah. So it sounds like it really helps move stuckness, whether it's physical in the bowels or in life, just across the board. And then also on the other planes, like the mental and the spiritual planes also. Yeah, totally. It just blasts stagnation and, and on a physiological level too, you know, there's, there's potent antimicrobial effects, there's immunogenic or immune boosting effects as well as immune modulating effects, which is important. Um, there's changes in, uh, likely changes in like neurotransmitter receptor expression and, and increasing of like dopamine activity. There's changes to the HPA axis and to the vagal nerve tone. Mm-hmm. So if there's less research on combo and humans, then why would you choose this over something that's usually more pleasant, say like one of the classic psychedelics that are now starting to be researched more often because you chose this on your own journey? Yeah, I mean, trust me, I chose plenty of psychedelics too and and they're amazing tools, um, but they're different tools. And honestly, I have this funny memory. I was presenting at a conference at UCLA years ago on psychedelics as a novel approach for autoimmunity. And that was my, my prior research was in that. And at the end of the talk, I just talked for an hour about how amazing psychedelics can be for, for chronic illness and autoimmunity. And someone comes up to the Q&A and they're like, yeah, yeah. But what about combo? You know, if you had to choose between doing like ayahuasca or combo, um, which one would you do? And I was like, combo, a hundred percent mic drop. And everyone's like, whoa. <laughs> um, and the truth is, I think that combo is way more effective um, for, you know, bang for your buck um, for some of these more physical manifestations in disease. And the reason is, is that one, one, the peptides are just um, amazingly potent and effective, but two, it's a much more somatic experience. And I find that a lot of people that have chronic illness, they, they also have a lot of trauma and they also have a lot of disassociation. And in a way, our chronic illness developing is like our body screaming at us to like, hear it to pay attention to it to feel it. it's like hey you're not you're not feeling me so i'm gonna like turn up the volume and combo there's no escaping it it brings you into your body whereas psychedelics can kind of pull you out and then you can hang out in la la land for a bit and i do think psychedelics are also valuable for these types of illnesses and and psychosomatic things but um sometimes people can bypass by kind of continuing to disassociate and hang out in you know outer space and there's no way of escaping that with combo that's a huge one and especially even though the people who don't necessarily think they have a capital t trauma they weren't in a war they didn't have someone die right next to them we all have different forms of trauma and it doesn't have to be a big trauma that still imprints and nestles in our body somewhere lodges in our body and i can see how this would be very helpful as another tool in the toolbox to help with recognize some of those traumas and then work through them because they don't 
disappear. They remain until they're addressed. So you've already alluded to peptides several times, and there are certainly some kind of peptides and peptide-like effects coming from Combo. I know that there's a bunch of peptides out there. We've talked about several other ones on the show previously, especially the antimicrobials. I've used LL37 and TA1 and a bunch of stuff for immunity previously. I travel with it sometimes in a case of emergency, basically. But what are some of the peptides do you know within Combo or like how is that working? Yeah, so um, there's likely more that will emerge as you know once more investigation happens. But from my experience, combing through the literature and then publishing what I think is the most up to date, comprehensive peptide literature review of Combo, um, there's about 27 peptides that I've identified from phylum Medusa bicolor. There's a number of other frogs that in that phylum medusid family that also have really interesting peptides. And sometimes I think people lump them together, not realizing that uh, some are distinct in other species. But uh, yeah, there's probably around 27 or so different analogs. And within that, there's eight main peptide families, like categories that they're fitting into. Some of them are opioid peptides, like the deltorphins and the um, dermorphins, and they have very potent opioid activity and also effects on like vagal nerve tone. They're being explored for like uh, being interventions for like ischemic, mitigating ischemic damage in stroke or heart attack. Because as I recently learned, opioids in general are like one of the most effective ways of reducing glutamate excitotoxicity, which is the mechanism of ischemic damage. Um, there's also a lot of cardiovascular peptides. So like phylomedusin and um, phylokinin, which influence um, the tachykinin and bradykinin systems, which have a lot of implications that we still don't understand completely, but definitely um, effects on vasodilation, uh, perhaps permeability of the vasculature. There is this rumor that has become adopted as gospel, unfortunately, that these uh, peptides can induce permeability of the blood-brain barrier. We don't actually know that for sure. No one's really I've never found any publications on that. The The original scientist who kind of categorized these peptides, um, Victoria Espammer, he did allude to that. So I don't know if he kind of did some like off the, off the um, cusp like investigation and then just didn't publish it or if it was just speculation. But, you know, that's like a big um, implication of like, oh, maybe there's opening of the blood-brain barrier and perhaps facilitation of some of the other peptides straight into the nervous system. Um, and there's also a lot of gastric uh, juice secretion, smooth muscle contact contraction, gallbladder contraction, things like that that are also induced by some of the peptides. Um, let's see what else. And then there's like ant the antimicrobial peptides, um, the dermaceptins, which are extremely fascinating. And there's, to my knowledge, there's about 12 different analogs of that from Phylomedusa bicolor, and they just decimate pathogens on contact, and very selectively so. So they don't seem to have any cytotoxicity towards mammalian cells or, or animal cells, and 
They're not sure entirely why, but it could have something to do with the presence of cholesterol in the phospholipid bilayer of um, the cell membrane of animal cells, which is obviously different than single-celled organisms. And so it seems to like bind to bacteria, um, fungi, uh, viruses, uh, protozoa, all sorts of these kind of more simple organisms and somehow like cause the membrane to just completely collapse on itself. There's some sort of like electrical, it changes like the electrical gradient, which then just decimates the whole organism. So there's, there's no room for like resistance to develop, which is a huge problem with antibiotics. Right. And so it is important that we develop novel ways of fighting infectious organisms. And I do think antimicrobial peptides could be one of those developments. Um, so that, that's a really cool, fascinating um, aspect of Cambo. And there's also anti-cancerous properties from those same peptides. You know, some of them uh, act on like the HPA axis and change um, some of the signaling with like beta endorphins and glucocorticoids and adrenocorticotrophin releasing hormone. Yeah. So there's all these behavioral changes that you see in rats, um, anti-addictive properties, um, increases of like social behavior, uh, decreases of like locomotion and, uh, all sorts of really fascinating things. But I will state that, a lot of this research, one, isn't being done in humans. It's, it's been done in in vitro, like petri dish, or in rats, or guinea pigs, or even dogs. And it is often one single peptide that they're investigating, and they're likely injecting it. And that is simply not the same as a human being with a spiritual intention in a ceremonial ritual um, being burned and having a multitude of peptides go into the system and having a vomiting experience. Like that's just people, people like to act like there's so much science on combo, but there's not, there's, and even the peptides themselves, there's really not a lot. There's, there's basic mechanisms have been figured out, but that was done in like the nineties and eighties. And there hasn't been much done since there's been some analogs created and studied and, and even patented and, and turned into drugs. But as far as the naturally occurring peptides themselves, there's been very little investigation. And part of that could just be the incentive to investigate something that's not patentable and, and um, eligible for drug development is not that interesting, you know, if it's going to cost $2 billion or whatever to push through drug development. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, it's kind of like with supplements that are isolates versus the full spectrum or like food ba food derived where it's like there's a synergy, like a bunch of different ingredients work together to exert better effects, oftentimes fewer side effects. And if you just take one thing, you isolate it, say you isolate curcumin out of the pl turmeric plant, you're getting very targeted effects, but you're also changing the profile drastically. And we don't know, like it tends like the actual plant the whole like, system tends to work better when you don't do that and so it's sad to hear that they're just testing individual peptides instead of like the whole combination yeah and even then that was you know decades ago and there's not really much happening now in the biochemical exploration and it's something I, I keep trying to push for but i'm an independent scientist and so the resources and access to things that i have are 
um, you know, really reliant on other institutions to make moves forward. So, uh, yeah, trust me, I'm, I'm so eager to explore so many other facets of, of this medicine, but, uh, you know, it moves at science speed, which is turtle slow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, the current system, the, cur- the current scientific system tends to be really good at taking one single thing, isolating one thing, one variable, changing that, manipulating that and seeing how that affects something. But the sad part is that's rarely how biology or the rest of like the natural world works. Yeah, and that's a big challenge when you're trying to study something like this. It's it's so complex and it doesn't really fit into like the neat clean model of modern research and medical technology and um I mean, I would love to see a paradigm shift happen in the medical field where we can find a way of effectively studying these multi-component and complex substances like plants, like frog secretion or whole foods or whatever. We're making our way there. So I'm impressed. How did you amass all this knowledge about it if there isn't that much research? And you said not that much human research. And that's, of course, like in peptides in general, I've been looking around at a lot of the top ones and you'd be surprised how few papers there are in healthy humans so I'd imagine that if you're looking at combo as a whole, there's going to be a very scarce amount of total research and even less in humans. Yeah, well, it's really easy to become an expert at um, a field that is so small. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've read pretty much most of the papers um, that are around combo and its peptides Um because there's not that many of them. <laughs> so that's how I know all this stuff. And there is some research on like the, the mechanistic parts, you know, the biochemistry, um, but there's very little human research. Like the only human study that I'm aware of with those peptides, and perhaps there's more, um, is they did a study with dermorphin, which is one of the opioid peptides for post-operative pain management. And it outperformed morphine in all of the areas, in pain efficacy, in need, needs for more medication, in um, like patient outcome. Like, like it just completely blew it out of the water. And then no more studies, which, you know, doesn't surprise me. You do not want to step on the toes of, a, of an opioid producing drug company. Um but I'm like, uh, okay. Um, and then I think there's been some exploration in cerulin, which it, it's hard to know if, if there's phylocerulin or, or cerulin or a mix of both because they're perhaps indistinguishable on like assays and stuff. So you, it's hard to really tell what you're, what you're actually encountering in the secretion. But um, there's been some some looks at cerulin as an antipsychotic in schizophrenics, especially when combined with other atypical antipsychotic drugs. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's like a desert. So you could throw a rock anywhere in this field and you'll be landing on something novel. And I really saw that like, dude, we got to like start studying this in humans in the way that humans are taking it. Humans aren't injecting one peptide at a time with this stuff. And so um, luckily I, I had the support to move forward with really like creating the first 
human study on combo and I'm, we're just about wrapped up with the enrollment so if there's anyone listening I need two more subjects. <laughs> I'm, I'm over it. I want to like move on with the data collection and analysis. Um, but yeah, I think it is the first prospective human study with looking at Cambo in, in ritualistic context. And, you know, it's a simple study. You have to start somewhere, you know, but it's, it's a psychometric outcome investigation. So it involves surveys, you know, about mood and mindfulness and, emotional well-being and pain and fatigue and things like that. In particular, we've been interested in looking at people with chronic illness, especially Lyme disease or other autoimmune conditions. Um, so yeah, so far we have some preliminary results, which are really cool. And probably the most surprising thing that we're seeing so far is that there has been a substantial and sustained reduction in depression symptoms. So it just goes like whoop, like immediately after the doing three sessions within a 30 days, that's like the general protocol window. Um, and people's depression scores are just like dropping. And then three months later, when we follow up with the same scales, not only have their depression scores stayed low, they actually continue to drop slightly. So that's really, yeah, really fascinating and, and wasn't really kind of part of my hypothesis, but I, I guess I didn't have a hypothesis. I was just kind of exploring. Um, and then another thing that's kind of emerging, which really aligns with my, my experience as a practitioner, is that having um, more time in between sessions seems to be associated with better outcomes. And that makes sense because there's, there's more time to integrate and there's less brutality. You know, some people are doing three days in a row and then other people are spacing them out like three weeks or, you know, like a, sorry, a week in between. Um, and we are seeing some data that suggests that like you'll get better results if you allow some space and time to rest and integrate in between, which has always been part of my philosophy, especially working with so many people with sensitive health. Um, so I'm really excited about that project. And, you know, we're like in year, we're at the end of year two with it. So I'm really hoping by the end of next year, we'll have the results out and published and readable for the public. Very cool. You said a word a second ago that I want to unpack a bit because I'm sure it's the it's 2023 and people have heard the word integration before. Can you define what that is and why it's so important? I've heard some people say that integration is everything and other and like emphasizing that this is the important part of any of these types of medicines and this work. Yeah, I mean, it's a hot topic lately, especially in the psychedelic world, right? I mean, what if you think about what the word integration is, actually means descriptively it's it's when you're able to weave when, when something is able to become a part of something else right in a cohesive way and it's really when you're able to weave in an experience or a lesson or a release or shift or whatever you want to call it when you're able to incorporate that into your version of yourself and your your life and your lifestyle and your habits and the way you move through the world, that's what integration is. And that's why it's so important. Because think about if you have this profound experience 
on ayahuasca or DMT or or combo or whatever, but you don't integrate it into a new version of who you are, did you change? Did was there actually an upgrade to your software? Right. Um, and if not, well then what was the point? Was it just a cool and interesting experience? That's fine. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But ideally we can get more from these experiences than just, oh, that was weird and I don't need to do that again. Um you know, because especially something as unpleasant as combo, like you, you better have a reason to do that. Like you better get something out of it. And that is largely up to the person and the practitioner to some extent, you know, it's, it's our job as a practitioner to guide people into being able to have the tools and the context to create meaning from their experience. But it really is up to the participant. And that is also why ritual is so important and ceremony element is important, even though it's not traditional. In the jungle, they don't do any ceremony. You just sit on a log and they just laugh at you while you puke all over yourself. Um, and it's very casual there. And so that is a Western adaptation is, is adding the element of like this neo-spiritual container which I actually think is amazing. And I think it's, it is an innovative way of working with this medicine where we then can actually get more benefit from it. So I'm all for it. I'm, I'm not a dogmatic uh, traditionalist at all. The only dogma I subscribe to is do no harm. That's the only thing I think we all need to be united on is let's not hurt people. It's ultimately up to you what your experience means. And you know, like I said, a lot of the gifts of Cambo are the days, weeks, and months after the experience when you notice you're relating to yourself, to your life, to your loved ones differently. And Cambo is there to support you and giving you the courage to then enact changes. But if you don't change, if you don't uh, integrate these thoughts and ideas and perspectives about how you can make your life better, it won't matter. So doing the work itself, though, that I mean, you mentioned the benefits accrue over time, they take some time, like days, weeks, months to really present themselves. And I'm assuming carving out some time to reflect and to process everything that's happening, whether it's on a daily basis or a weekly basis, just having that time set aside maybe even journaling beforehand and after and comparing and contrasting the experience and personality shifts you're noticing, relational shifts you're noticing. Like what is the actual practice of integrating? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be different for each person. And of course, integration coaches, I'm sure will have their own opinions on that. Um, but yeah, there's a number of tools. Journaling can be one of them. Talking with a therapist can be one of them or, or an integration coach um, or spending time outside in nature alone. Going camping by yourself could be an integration or just laying in bed and staring at the wall, playing music, like whatever does it for you. Um, personally, I I created like a, a intention and integration workbook. And if anybody wants to use it, it's free on my website on medicinefrogcombo.com. Um and so I have some exercises that people can fill out and, and go through prior to their session, which I would say that preparation and intention is as important for integration as the post 
ceremony stuff because it it helps you have context when you go into the ceremony, which then you're not scrambling to figure out like, oh, what does that all mean? Because you already knew what you were going to make it mean. So you can go through those exercises to get clear on your intention and to be able to articulate with clarity um, why the heck you're putting yourself through that experience and, and therefore wh- why do you want to get the most out of it. And then there's exercises that people can do afterwards as well. And a lot of times it's like prompting them with certain questions for reflection of like, you know, there's some acute um, immediately after the experience questions of like, you know, how did I show up in the experience itself? Was I resistant? What could I have done better? What did I do really well? What thoughts was I feeling in the midst of it? What was coming up for me when, when I was done and laying down in that like kind of blissful glowy phase? And then there's exercises that people can fill out like a week later or, or days later that are then more about like, how have I been feeling? What have I noticed is different? And how am I behaving that's different? Did I set a goal for myself? Did I stick to that goal? Why or why not? Um, And giving them the framework to like really participate and create a plan um, and ask themselves questions that they might not think to ask themselves. But then you can have these like insights of like, oh yeah, actually... I haven't been pissed at my boyfriend this week or whatever it might be. But sometimes these things are so unconscious that we can just breeze past them. Yeah, that's why it's really helpful to have some kind of guide or reference to help you like notice the little things that otherwise seem normal until it wears off or you reflect on the way you were before your experience. And then you can only then can you see the difference. Yeah. And there's plenty of people that come and, you know, they do combo and they're, they're like, I don't get it. I don't know. I just, I felt sick and then I felt fine. And then I, and then I don't, you know, my life's the same. And I find that those people are quite detached from themselves. And they're also usually the people that wanted the combo to come in and fix them. They're still having this narrative that like, it's an external thing that's going to fix me and guide me. And therefore they, they show up in a really passive way. And so when they come out of the experience, they don't get anywhere because they haven't realized that they're the one driving the ship. You have to decide where you're going to go with your thoughts and your actions. And combos there just to like put rocket fuel underneath your ass to like give you the the fuerte to be like, yeah, I can do this. And, and this, the spaciousness from like the grooves of your patterning. But that's really all it does is disrupt your patterning long enough that you can see things from a, a different angle. But then ultimately, you're the one that's got to like decide, hey, I need to stop doing this behavior or I need to stop self-sabotaging or I need to stop having these negative self-thoughts or whatever. Do you know how it affects your like neurochemistry and also like your I guess electromagneto neurochemistry? You mean you mean like QEEG type of stuff? Yeah, like like what it's doing to your mind and your conscious and your subconscious and your neurotransmitters. Like, do you know what it's affecting there? Sparsely. I mean, I I definitely have speculation. Um, I definitely think there's an augmentation of dopamine activity after combo, whether that's due to actual 
production of dopamine or increased receptor expression or even increased sensitivity of dopamine receptors. Who knows? Um, but I have noticed definitely doing combo before a psychedelic really like enhances the psychoactive nature of it. And I would say just the psychoactive nature of your own brain after combo is like colors are brighter. Uh, things are a little more trippy, you know, like you're still clear and cognizant, but the world just feels a little brighter. Um, I do know of a friend of mine that has worked with some people doing QEEG investigation, and he kind of alluded to that they're finding um, some increased alpha wave activity. I don't know necessarily in what part of the brain or what the implications of that are. I know alpha wave activity in the brain can be associated with, you know, states of um, focus and flow and meditation. But, you know, someone like me who has like, pathologically high alpha frequency, um, you might not actually want to push me <laughs> too, too much higher into an alpha range. So of course, I don't know if that's necessarily a good or bad thing for people. Yeah. Well, what I found cool is you're, you've described some mechanisms so far in which it seems to be modulating the body, like bringing down levels if, it's, if they're too high and bringing them up if they're too low, such as with the immune system. Yeah, I find that combo seems to really hit these critical balancing points or, or, or like centers in the physiology that their whole thing is like about restoring um, feedback and, and regulation and modulation, which I think is the critical thing that's missing from a lot of conventional medical technology where you're kind of just pushing things one direction or the other, and then trying to like find the balance. And then in the meantime, you're screwing around with people's chemistry and psychology until you find that more or less balanced area. Um, but Cambo seems to restore the body's innate ability to recalibrate and to um, have these highly intelligent regulatory feedback mechanisms kind of be restored so that your body can sort itself out. And because of that, it is a highly customizable medicine that works for a lot of people in a lot of scenarios because it's not just going to. Um, it, indistinguishably like, put you one direction or the other, it's going to help you modulate and rebalance. I'm also curious about the traditional use. You mentioned that they use it to acutely heighten their senses before they go out hunting. But based on your physical description of the experience, it doesn't seem like something I'd want to take and then go try and do anything. Like after using it, I'd imagine that I want to like relax the rest of the day. <laughs> it's because you're a gringo. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's very important to acknowledge that we cannot really truly compare what's appropriate for an indigenous person and their lifestyle and their genetics to what a Westerner should do. And, you know, I see a lot of people think that there is superiority around traditional practices or values. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge and to respect the origins of this medicine for sure and to be in right relationship with the indigenous and with the frog itself. However, um, a lot of traditional practices are not appropriate for Westerners and, and the things that we deal with. And so the Matses 
they start taking this medicine when they're babies. It's part of their life from an early age, you know, two or three years old, if not earlier. And they regularly engage with it um, up to 20 times a month. So for them, their chemistry and their relationship with it is so different than some person from a neo-spiritual community that's doing combo to, you know, deal with their trauma or whatever. That's not why they use it. And and they're also not going to need the same recovery time as a normal person who's done combo once in their 40s or whatever, you know, because they their body really knows the substance. Um, and who knows, maybe they lay down for a bit after and then go on the hunt. I don't, I don't know if they like do it immediately. Admittedly, I have never gone on a hunt with them right after because I don't know how much they need to do that. Now they're, now they grow bananas and cassava and stuff like that. They definitely still eat bush meat for sure though. I've, I've eaten monkey with them and sloth, which was exciting. Things are changing, you know, even in the traditional settings. Um, so I don't know how how much of their original practices with combo will stay alive as the modern world changes. You know, now they've installed Starlink or whatever that, you know, hotspot for Wi-Fi. That's now at their village. So that and they have Facebook and they have cell phones and they wear, you know, Adidas or what you know, like they they're modernizing for sure. And so there is an interesting you know, integration of like, okay, how do we keep their their practices and their customs alive, their culture alive, but also just acknowledge that the world is globalized now and we cannot stop it. All right. So imagine that I'm here in the US. I want to get started. It's not quite as simple as going on Amazon or eBay or something like that and just finding the substance there and then getting it shipped to my doorstep, is it? Well, I mean, you can just buy it online. It is that easy. But please don't serve yourself. Um, There's certain substances like psilocybin or LSD or MDMA or whatever. And I'm all for like people being empowered to like do it safely with their friends. You don't necessarily need a guide. Um, guides can be helpful. But with, with combo, that is not the case. You need a trained practitioner. This is not to be messed with. This is, it's not simple. Um, and there's a lot of safety precautions that are not obvious unless you have real training. And I see a lot of people buying sticks off the internet, self-administering, or God forbid, deciding that they're a practitioner with no training. And even some of them are going to these trainings. There's all these three-day trainings that have been popping up, you know, the weekend warriors just want to like get it done in a weekend and it's completely insufficient. Um, and then they are under the false guise that they're properly trained and equipped to safely work with people. And then they hurt people and they realize that their training didn't cover what it needed to. So it's a whole problem that's happening as combo becomes really popular. So please find a qualified practitioner. And there's a number of ways that you can and should screen your practitioner because they're not all created equal. And like I said, there's there's all these rogue practitioners that are self-proclaimed or they've gone through 
um, laughably insufficient training programs and they lack the experience or, or even like medical understanding to really know what they're dealing with and, and to know um, what precautions need to be taken to mitigate most of the risks that can happen. And they're quite simple ways to mitigate those, those risks. So ask your practitioner questions about where did they receive their training? How experienced are they? Um, what was their journey with this medicine? Um, what safety protocols do they have in place? Do they do a test point or, or safety point? Um, do they screen you for contraindications? If, if your practitioner does not do a medical questionnaire, run away. Don't work with them. That's a huge red flag because it takes two minutes to ask some basic medical questions that are the difference between someone living and dying. So if they're not doing that, that is a huge red flag. Um, ask them what their protocols are for avoiding hyponatremia, which is basically water toxicity and electrolyte disturbance. That's the main problem with combo. It's, it doesn't have so much to do with combo being toxic because it, it, it's not toxic. Actually, the peptides are not toxic. Um, but the water is toxic sometimes, um, especially if people are on these no-salt dietas because they either think that all Amazonian medicines require diet or they're mixing ayahuasca and combo in close proximity, which I don't advise, um, and they're abstaining from salt. Um, so you can get into trouble there. So ask them what their protocols are around water drinking and in hyponatremia. Ask them what their protocols are around fainting or ass assisting people to the bathroom. And if they don't have a protocol, if they don't have an explanation for how they are taking precautions to keep you safe for those specific ex examples, they are not sufficiently trained and they should not be serving people. Those are good to know. And I'm sure you have a guide of some sorts which I will put in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, I'll definitely send you a link to a whole like um, article that I wrote about like how to choose a practitioner and what questions to ask. Um, and if, if you are looking for a practitioner, I created a practitioner directory site called combofinder.com. Uh, admittedly, it's it's quite buggy and it is the bane of my existence and um, it's hopefully not broken at the moment, but you can search for a practitioner or a training or even combo supplier um, in your area um, that, and you can, you can filter people by their qualifications. You can see their certifications. You can see what other expertises they have, how long they've been practicing. You can see reviews written by people that have sat with them. So um, that's a good resource as well if you are looking for someone in your area that can provide to you. Oh, that's perfect. That is really good to know. Thanks for sharing that and creating it. Can you walk us through a quick, like, end to end, like start to finish experience. Like what is this? You mentioned water just now. And I know what that is because I have a number of friends that have used combo, but I'm not sure if we discussed that all in this episode. Yeah. So typically a practice that has evolved in the West is to imbibe a large amount of water prior to the application of combo. Um, and that's not necessarily done in the indigenous communities. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to do. However, there are risks that come with that water consumption. And so there's something called hyponatremia that can happen, which is really 
um, an electrolyte disturbance that happens either when there's like a low level of salt or electrolyte intake and or an excessive amount of water that's being taken in. And this can happen if people are sweating and like dehydrated and losing salt, but then drinking a bunch of water that doesn't have minerals or electrolytes in it. Um, Or it could happen from like using the sauna or prolonged fasting or avoiding salt because of like an ayahuasca prep diet. Um, And it's it's really bad and it's potentially fatal because your cells will swell with water because they're trying to like regulate the gradient between the salt inside and outside of the cell and they'll actually burst. And so that happens in like your heart cells and your brain cells and it can kill people. So it's very serious and it is really the primary thing that hurts people when it comes to Kembo. So how do you avoid it? Oh, it's quite simple. You take precautions and you can supplement with electrolytes. You can identify people who are going to be at increased risk of electrolyte disturbance. For example, people on certain medications or that have certain health conditions where maybe there's a nutritional malabsorption because the gut is not very effective uh, or they have Lyme disease or something like that. Um, And you can have very strict protocols around the quantity of water that people drink. I still think there's benefit to drinking water as it lubricates the purgative process and it can dilute the caustic effects of the bile because that can damage your like esophageal tissue if it's like super concentrated. Um, but I kind of limit like the my client's water intake to about a liter and a half initially and then no more than a liter during the experience. And I'm also monitoring how much is coming out versus going in. Sometimes I will cut someone off and say, okay, no more water because you don't need a whole gallon of water. And so a lot of practitioners just don't know this. And they're like, yeah, as more water is better. And they literally force people to drink a set amount of water, sometimes like three or four liters. And that's dangerous because the water alone kills people. So really, you don't need a lot, a liter, a liter and a half. I think that's a a happy medium between having plenty to like fill, fill your stomach, but then not going into like dangerous territory necessarily. And also being trained and, and knowing what to look for if the signs of hyponatremia do emerge and not hesitating to get that person to a hospital so that they can get an IV to titrate their blood chemistry appropriately. Yeah. And that's just like the part of like leading up to the experience itself. And with a skilled practitioner, it shouldn't be a problem. They should already be trained in this. And then after you find a skilled practitioner and you consume the right amount of water, then usually you find a like quiet setting for this and they have all the required materials. So you don't need to like get up and do anything crazy in the middle of it. Like what's the actual experience from someone who's participating? Like what can they expect? Well, that's going to be very different for each uh, practitioner because it is like a, an artistic expression of every person's unique way of working with Cambo. Um, so for my ceremonies, I mean, I have a whole ritualistic container and I start my ceremonies with, you know, 
chatting with people and, and getting an understanding of their intention and then debriefing them on the process so they have full informed consent of anything that can happen, which is important. And then we open with a prayer. And then I do rape, which is a tobacco snuff. And then I do sananga, which are botanical eye drops uh, prior to the combo. And I do that to kind of help people ease into the ceremonial setting and to also help them cultivate skills and ideas that are going to help them be applied to moving through the combo experience more gracefully. Um, so it's, it's like an hour before people are actually doing the combo, um, by the time they, they come to my house. And then during the actual combo experience, of course, everything's provided. There's cushions and pillows and blankets and buckets and tissues. And, you know, I have those interlocking foam mats. So everything is like really soft. So if someone were to faint and, you know, their head hits my, my ground, it's cushioned and they're safe. There's no sharp objects in the space where someone can hit their head. Um, there's artwork. So like the whole setting is, is very intentionally curated. And then I'm singing for them the entire time. I'm playing music. I'm playing instruments. I'm reminding them of their intention. I'm checking in with them. I'm monitoring them. I'm um, encouraging them. And it's, it's like a very delicate dance of like making sure that they feel that you are present with them the whole time, but not crowding them. Sometimes I see practitioners like in their space, hands on them, touching them every two minutes. Okay, how are you doing? Like, what's going on? And it's like, just let them be. And that's why I like music is because it's a way of like not interrupting their process, but telling them, showing them that you're present, you're paying attention and you're engaged in the space with them. But they're still learning that like, oh no, I'm, I'm the hero of my own story. This person's not healing me. They're just supporting me. And that's really important because sometimes both practitioners and participants get wrapped up in the, this idea that like this person is healing them and that can be very dangerous, right? And then there's a lot of ego that can come with that and power dynamics and, and also disempowerment. So my whole ethos is like, how do I create a container where my client comes back to realizing that they are the medicine, that they are in charge, that they are autonomous and they are the powerful force behind their own healing. And I'm just there to like remind them. But then when you're actually applying the medicine, you take a tool and you heat it up and you apply the medicine to the tool and then apply it to their arms. Is that how it works? Oh yeah. So like practically speaking, um, so I use something called Tamishi vine and it's basically a wooden stick and you light it on fire and it has like a little cherry burn and then you just burn someone. It's, it's like a quick, like drunk person with a cigarette at a concert, you know? Um, and then you open up that burn to reveal like the lymphatic layer underneath and you um, the medicine will often come on like a, a bamboo stick and it's this dried secretion that is like very crystalline. So you have to reconstitute it with water unless you're getting fresh off the frog, of course. And so you'll add water. Some people use saliva. I think it's okay to evolve past that. You know, the reason they use saliva in the jungle is they don't have access to clean water. Probably the same reason that they don't drink water. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then you use a knife or some sort of tool to like, 
reconstitute it and you get these little frog boogers and then you form little blobs and then you apply them to this open burn and the burn's not like bleeding or anything it's just like a shiny little white blister um and you apply it and then within a minute it's it's happening party's on it's very very fast and it can be uh, you can feel a bit of a panic you're like oh this is fast and this doesn't feel okay but once you learn like oh no this is just how it feels then you you can trust it a bit more and relax and not be like contracted or braced but the first session people are like what the hell is did i just sign up for why am i doing this and there's not a lot of work that happens in the first session sometimes for people if they're really good at that but it's more like they're just figuring out what the hell they have just stepped into and then once the shock wears off uh the second, third, and continuing sessions is where more of the it's more it's where more of the like conscious, intentional work happens for a lot of people. Yeah, just last weekend, someone was describing their experience to me, and he mentioned that he could feel like the sensation traveling through his arm, and then through his body, and then up his neck into his head, and then down, and then he started feeling like nauseous only after the sensation started coming down from the top of his head. But it's just interesting to hear like that's what the sensation was like for him. Yeah, like I said, it's um, it really is like a embodiment mindfulness tool because the sensations are so potent and so bizarre that they really force you to tune into feeling. And if you're not used to that, that can be a rude awakening. <laughs> yeah. Is there a such thing as like a standard dose? Like, do you how how do you know how much to apply? Yeah. So, um, I dose very conservatively. Um, and that's what I teach my students as well, because really you do have to customize the dosage for one, each, each batch of medicine you get is completely unique. Just like you and I, these, these frogs have completely different chemistry and we don't even really know how consistent their peptide composition is between frogs. It's something we're trying to figure out at UCSD, except it's taking forever to get a DNA sample because I just refuse to kill a frog. And also our unique biochemistry, it it makes it like completely unstandardizable. Um, so even like one day to the next, our sensitivity is going to be different based on what we ate or how we felt or how good our circulation is or where is our blood pressure or whatever. Um, and so most importantly, though, is that when someone is receiving combo for the first time, they should be administered a test point. There's no reason not to do this. Um, you just put that first point on and you are monitoring for not only like rare adverse effects, which I've really kind of never seen on a test point, to be honest, but in case there is one, um, you can you can see that like, something is not right and it is quite reversible. So if something's not right, you can wipe it off and the amount of peptides that have entered the system can be rapidly degraded and hopefully avoid having like a, an event. Um, but you're also gauging that person's sensitivity and what dosage is going to be appropriate for them moving forward. And, and it's not based on body weight. It's not based on sensitivity to other drugs. It's not based on health or fitness. It is 
so unpredictable. And that's why it is so critical to do a test point with people until they have experience with the medicine that allows them to have an idea of their sensitivity. And also the the point location is going to make a big difference. Uh, Putting medicine on someone's ankle is going to be a very different experience than putting medicine on the back of somebody's neck or on their chest. So you have to account for that as well when choosing dosage, Um, but also the person's intention and what do they need. If somebody has Lyme disease and they are like critically ill and they have like super bad fatigue and pain, you do not want to slam them into the ground. You can hurt them. And I do know of people who have, who have had chronic illness who got worse after doing combo, not with me, but with other providers because they were dosed in a way that was like brutal and they were not held in a safe space where they actually felt safe enough to vomit, which is a whole thing. And, and so there is a, a whole thing around like, well, if someone doesn't vomit, but they really need to, Uh, but they're psychologically holding, then they can reabsorb a lot of toxins that have just been kind of secreted into the, into the gut and then they get recirculated and then that can cause problems too. So that person's going to need a different treatment than, um, somebody who is maybe like an athlete, a professional athlete with no health issues, or, or maybe they're going through, um, a breakup or, or maybe they're becoming a father, you know, like men's work is a great contrast to like chronic illness, right? So like chronic illness, like I'm all about the yin, the yin, the yin and like nurturing and that feminine softness. But then there's like rites of passage or uh, men's work or whatever, where like you draw in that warrior energy and it is totally appropriate to have more of a young, like masculine kind of hardcore approach. So it really just depends on like why and what the goal is. What is that person's unique sensitivity and and what type of experience is going to serve them? Because if they're a traumatized being with a tendency to contract, they probably don't need a traumatic combo experience to help them. That's just going to perpetuate bracing against life. And that is not what they need. They need to learn how to like induce a parasympathetic safety response in order to heal that trauma. Well, Caitlin, we're going to start to wind this one down. If people want to work with you, I don't know if that's possible remotely, or if they happen to be in Bali, they can work with you in person, or they want to just check out your work. How can they go about that? Yeah, um, I have a number of websites for different things, so feel free to visit all of them. Um, you know, I have some resources on medicinefrogcombo.com, such as the intention and integration guide. So that's free for you to use. Or if you're a practitioner, feel free to share it with your clients as a tool. Um, and then I also have some articles on on both that website um, and combospecialist.com and Combo Finder. So, I mean, really just check them all out because I have tons of resources on all of them. Combo Finder is great if you're looking for a practitioner in your area. Um, There's also some videos on there about um, safety and how to choose practitioner. There's a bunch of different videos on there. Uh, There's also a vault on Combo Finder which you can also access through my other sites. Um, that is like a compilation of studies that I have um, linked with the 
the name of the study and, and such like that. And, and then there's a link to Sci-Hub. If you guys don't know about Sci-Hub, it is, it's fantastic. It's like this, um, this rebellious Russian chick who felt that everybody deserved access to reading scientific papers for free. And so she has created this like sneaky, shifty website where you can put in the um, DOI of any uh, paper uh, that you want to read and it'll pull up that full text paper. And so I, I kind of explain how to use it so that you can read all the full text papers. And I have legit published research because of that tool. So I am so grateful for it. Um, and yeah, and it also on Medicine Frog Combo, you can read a little bit more about some of my previous publications um, and studies and papers that I've published on Combo and a little bit about the current study that's going on. And um yeah, just check all those sites out, combospecialist.com, medicinefrogcombo.com, combo finder. And then I also have information about practitioner training on combo specialist. So if you are feeling the call to step into being of service, uh, or if you're already a practitioner and you want some more specialty training, I have a Lyme and autoimmune course um, and will soon to have an advanced online only training for people that have already gone through some sort of basic in-person training, but, you know, want to fill in some of the gaps from their training and, and just advance their knowledge. So yeah, there's a lot of offerings. Feel free to poke around. Awesome. Thanks for creating those. And I will put links to everything we've mentioned so far in the show notes for this episode. And I have one more question for you before we wrap this one up. If there was a worldwide burning of the books and all knowledge on earth is lost, but you get to save the works of three teachers, and these teachers can be any form of knowledge, entertainment, whatever you want, who would you choose and why? There's not a specific author necessarily, but like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the the wisdom in traditional Buddhism, I, it would be such a devastation to have that lost. So definitely um, that's something that I think should be preserved in this scenario. Um, I think also maybe, uh, so Vittorio Espammer, the Italian biochemist who was the original a scientist who kind of isolated all these combo peptides. He was much more than that. He was a very mystical scientist, very similar to Albert Hoffman. He, he reminds me of him. And he actually was the guy who discovered serotonin. He discovered it in the gut first called enteramine. And then later someone discovered it in the brain and called it serotonin. So he kind of got ripped off. But um, yeah, I think that he's been a, an incredible contributor to um, research and science. And maybe like Ram Dass, you know, there's just, there's so much fun, playful wisdom in his teachings and his texts. And um, they, they, there's a lightness there's a lightness and yet a a um, wholeness to them that I can appreciate. They're not too serious and yet they are deep. So yeah, I think those are my three answers. And that's a very difficult thing to do to bring the intensity and the the wisdom, and at the same time making it light. I'm working on bringing some some lightness to the intensity to balance it out. 
Yeah, we have to remember this is a, a game at the end of the day, and we're all just playing our little characters, and it's it's supposed to be fun, and there's no way to lose the game because you're just playing, you know? Yes. Well, Caitlin Thompson, it's been a pleasure hosting you on the show today, and I look forward to seeing the results of your study when it's finally done and staying in contact. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope our listeners did too. So thank you so much for your time. Until next time, I'm Nick Urban here with Caitlin Thompson, signing out from mindbodypeak.com. Have a great week and be an outlier. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Head over to Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating. Every review helps me bring you thought-provoking guests. As always, you can find the show notes for this one at mindbodypeak.com slash and then the number of the episode. There, you can also chat with other peak performers or connect with me directly. The information depicted in this podcast is for information purposes only. Please consult your primary healthcare professional before making any lifestyle changes.